0: Coming up this hour, a black pastor received a horrifying letter. And then later we're going to talk about the difference between belonging and belief. You're listening to The Common Good. Hi friends, welcome to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm. Hello. Welcome. We don't spend enough time asking you how you're doing. I know that we can't <laughs> we can't hear you back, but yeah, for the sake of camaraderie here, how how are you doing? How does this radio show, and or podcast find you in this moment. Uh, how are you feeling? How am I feeling
1: today? Uh, it's good. Today's a good day. I'm actually uh, today up in the studio. Uh, we haven't been up here in a while. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a good day. Every day when you're like, how are you doing today? I'm like, hmm, I think it's been pretty good, you know, except that it's freezing outside and only going to get worse. Uh, here, this is that time of year where we're like, "Why do exactly do we live here?" But that's a whole discussion for another day. Uh, I am doing well. How are you, my co-host and friend? How are you doing today?
0: Oh, I am. I' too warm, too warm. I was going to say the opposite of everything. You've <laughs> been turned uh, up in your basement. <laughs> I got a little electric fireplace. I'm staring at, and it is, it is cranking something fierce here in my concrete basement. No, I'm, fine. am I'm fine. You know, I got, I got my <laughs> knee thing. I, uh, yeah. Let's see. I had a, a wonderful. My wife made uh, Greek meatballs yesterday, and Ooh, that, that as a good. leftover was even better. It was so good. Yeah, so so good. As far as as far as lunches go, uh, you know that that was um, that was a that was a pretty high bar. So yeah, feeling feeling pretty good about that. So good, good with on. that hard right turn. Hard I, I right was, turn. <laughs> I was gonna. I was almost gonna not talk about it, and mm-hmm. I think you could make a case for not talking about it. People might mm-hmm. be asking, like, okay, this is. So horrific. Why are you even giving this airtime? I thought about it. It's, it's kind of why it's a few days late. It's you probably heard other people talk about it or post about it. The more I sat with it, the more I thought, no, nah, I think I think we need to at least stare this in the face for what it is. And I think it will really surprise people that something like this was written this year. And And the more that I thought about that, I was like, man, the very fact that I think it would surprise so many of us is why I think we need to talk about it. Because there's plenty of us, I'm sure, who think or feel Ah, this kind of stuff doesn't still happen, or it's not mm-hmm. still going on in the world. And the very fact that it is, uh, should be for everyone, Christ followers in particular, deeply troubling. And I would move beyond troubling to angering. Like we should yes. look at this. So you might be wondering, well, what the heck is he talking about? All right, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna hand it over then to Brian and let you, uh, get us into it.
1: Yeah. Uh, Pastor Dwight McKissick, and I believe we talked about him a couple weeks ago. He's at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas, uh, and it says he has a long history of fiercely opposing strains of white nationalism that he thinks have poisoned the Southern Baptist Convention. And so he's been a vocal critic as of late, especially when uh, the Southern Baptist Convention's uh, seminary presidents came out with their condemnation of critical race theory. Uh, and then he eventually got to the point where he announced that his church would be leaving the Southern Baptists of Texas Convention over its, quote, inaction on racist sentiment within the convention. Uh, and so Dwight McKissick, he, it's a, he is a well-known African-American pastor uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so uh, it came out this week that another pastor by the name of John Rutledge had sent him, sent McKissick, a letter uh, that then got posted onto, onto Facebook. Uh, now, some of the background of Rutledge. Rutledge, uh, yeah, I don't know how else to put it except to say, uh, he's got some issues in his past. Let's put it that way. Uh, but this letter, as you talked about it, and I'm, I don't even know whether to read it or not. I will just say this. Uh, it is not, um, so this is one pastor to another. This is, uh, copied to other pastors. Like, it wasn't necessarily meant to be private. It doesn't say, hey, keep this between us. Right. right, right. Uh, and so he says this is in regard to the article of McKissick cuts ties with the uh, Southern Baptist of Texas Convention and potentially with the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, John Rutledge, pretty well known in the Southern Baptist Convention, writes this. And it is one of the most overtly racist things I've ever read. Like, it's horrifying. Uh,
0: it's uh, unbelievable. Uh, in,
1: in our day, right, you, you'd read these types of things in history books like here's the letter Martin Luther King got or here's the right. letter. And so it's been flying around. I think it was originally posted by another pastor by the name of Kyle Howard. He said an email my friend received recently after announcing his departure from the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. And so thankfully, a lot of people from the Southern Baptist world have been uh, answering this tweet with just their horrifying. Uh, I'm horrified by this. And just their condemnation of it, which, you know, it's a low bar, but we should at least be uh, uh, happy about that. Uh, but I think it's, uh, you know, when I saw that you put this in our rundown to talk about at first, I was like, oh, I don't really want to talk about that. And that's probably the reason to do so is because, yeah. uh, you know, when we talk about especially what some of our African-American brothers and sisters are facing, do I believe that John Rutledge uh Is the majority position? Absolutely not. Do I believe John Rutledge is the only person speaking this way uh, to to Reverend McKissick and others? I also do not. And so uh, it's a reminder of just the uh, the insidious nature of racism and the race problems that we not only still have in our country, but in our churches. Uh, And, you know, it'd be easy for us to be like, oh, man, I can't believe the South. It's still the South. It's not just the South. Uh, right. This is this is across the board. And so it's I won't even read it because it's just horrifying uh, what he writes. Uh, and uh, e- there's not any redeeming value to it. But it's a reminder of of there are still some deeply deep seated, sinful um Uh, racist attitudes out there. And this was kind of it in black and white to see it. You're just kind of like, oh, my gosh. And so obviously we condemn this in the strongest of terms, but it's also just an eye opener. And I think a lot of what we've done on our show is to try to say, hey, let's have our eyes open to even things that are are extremely uncomfortable.
0: Well, and part of the reason that I did want to talk about it, and I would recommend going and read it, going and reading it, even though um, I mean, be forewarned, like it's it's just filled with Awful, horrific rhetoric for any human, let alone a Christ follower, let alone a Christian leader. Like that's the part where my blood starts to boil the most. Because, like you said, and I think you're right. I pray, I pray to God that you're right. I don't think this is a majority position at all. Mm-hmm. But I also know that He's not alone. And and mm-hmm. the very fact that I think that's true is is probably part of what's behind His confidence in writing it in the first place. You know, I think yeah. if He knew, like oh, I'm the only one who feels this way. So I'm going to kind of shrink back here. I'm going to like, there's a, there's a confidence that comes with knowing you're not the only one who holds this position. And I don't know how to say it any more strongly than you did, Brian. I think you did a great job. It is so utterly and completely incompatible with the way of Jesus Christ. I don't even know how to begin right to say it any stronger than that. Like it's, it's, it would like break my heart so completely to know that anyone feels like that's at all, but to know that someone's in a pulpit somewhere um, on behalf of Jesus and the Bible mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Yahweh creator God to say, yeah, this is, this is where we land and this is why we think Christianity supports it. Like, uh, hopefully you can yeah. hear in my voice. Like it just, it's so devastating to me, but I think the challenge and the reason I kind of wanted to start with it, I guess, uh, is to not, let that take the wind out of our sail. Like, uh, there's still more work that has to be done, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I like read this stuff, and I I want to just kind of go, oh my, how are we ever going to get better? You know, like that's maybe what a lot of people are feeling after they read it. Like, gosh, like I, we gotta get over that and say, all right, this, there's still work to be done. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. A lot of truth to power that needs to be said. A lot of healing and reconciliation and lament and repentance. And you know, what I mean, there's just it's just all in there. And you know, when you feel like Oh, maybe we're around in a corner. Maybe the work is almost done. You you read something like this, You're like, no, no, there's still, there's still a lot to be done. And again, uh, we welcome your feedback. We welcome what perspectives you might offer. And, uh, hopefully, Brian and I were as clear as we possibly could be to condemn mm-hmm. this in every way, shape, or form. And, um, we would love for some kind of helpful dialogue to maybe emerge from this. What does that work going forward look like, perhaps, is one of the questions. What would you do if you were a pastor that received a letter like this? How would you respond? Uh, that's up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, coming up next, here's something that perhaps a number of people have heard for a long time, but now there's research to back it. When it comes to building trust, belonging beats belief, study finds. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. So glad that you're here today. I don't know, Brian, have you ever used the phrase belonging before belief? Is that something that's like in your vernacular? I think yeah, that's a
1: good question. I'm not sure that I've ever used it from our pulpit, but it is certainly something that has become more and more of a well-known. Um, uh, I feel like it's an Andy Stanley thing. Like it's a uh, it's a well-known phrase, so yes. <laughs> I, mean,
0: I, didn't, I didn't mean to catch you up. It wasn't like a trick question.
1: <laughs> you ever get lost in what you're saying? There it was.
0: Yeah. I wasn't going to say anything, but I f- it felt awkward not to address it. Anyway, we, we ask me again. On. Ask me again. Go ahead. Ask no, me no, again. No, no, no. We've, already, we've burned too much time, Brian. Let me, uh, let me move on. I would well, say yes. First, perfect. <laughs> Thank you for that clarity. Uh, before we get into this article from church leaders, it actually reminds me of something I read years ago. So there's a, a woman named Heather Cop. And she wrote a book called Sober Mercies, How Love Caught Up with a Christian Drunk. Let me just read just two really short paragraphs because I I think they're wonderful. And I think it sets up this article pretty well. She writes, when folks gather around a system of shared beliefs, the price of acceptance in the group is usually agreement, which means the greatest value, stated or not, is being right. Unfortunately, this often creates an atmosphere of fear and performance, which in turn invites conformity. But when people gather around a shared need for healing... The price of acceptance in the group is usually vulnerability, which means the greatest value, stated or not, is being real. This tends to foster an atmosphere of safety and participation, which in turn invites community. I thought that was so good. If, if, the, if you're gathering around a system of shared beliefs versus a, 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 a shared need for healing, that tends to be, at least in my experience, the, the trajectory. And not always, but that I think it's a, a pretty fair assessment based on the communities that I've been a part of or observe from a distance. And uh, I think what this article has to say is that there's now like real data behind when it comes to building trust that belonging actually beats belief. So why don't why don't you uh, get us into some of the weeds here?
1: Yeah, this is at Church Leaders, originally at the Religion News Service. Uh, the Bible and other sacred texts are filled with warnings about the importance of putting your trust in the right place. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, the book of Proverbs says. Uh, Another spot in Proverbs warns, do not put your trust in princes and mortal man who cannot save. But does faith in God affect your ability to trust other people? And can religion help build trust? Those are the questions a pair of sociologists had in mind while working on a new study exploring the connection between religion and trust, Uh, especially uh, at a time when trust, at least in the United States, is on the decline. Because many people think, he writes, uh, religion can build trust. The studies authors wrote, but that may not always be the case Uh, using data from a couple different places. What they find was individual religiosity with a focus on prayer and belief in God versus social religiosity measured by attendance at services or membership in a religious group. They found higher levels of belief predicted less uh, predicted less trust, while higher levels of belonging predicted more trust. They also found that those who belong to religious groups or attend services have a lower level of uh, misanthrop- misanthropy or dislike of other people. People that are socially religious, that we what we classify as belonging, they're more likely to like people and have a lower misanthropy level. They went on to say that the study's findings reminded her of some of the messages she heard in church while growing up in Brazil – especially about putting your trust in God and not in other people. Often, she said, religious people are seen as trustworthy by others in the broader context, but that trust doesn't always extend the other way. There's more to this that we'll get into. Let me pause there. But uh, we've had enough conversations. I'm guessing this doesn't surprise you. How would you kind of uh, flesh this out? And I I guess I'll just ask you, does their findings surprise you at all?
0: It doesn't. It's the kind of findings that I actually find a lot of hope in because, you know, sometimes you can you can be really convinced of something, but especially when you're in leadership, you're like I don't have any I don't have anything to back that up necessarily. Like this isn't mm-hmm. you know we're not talking about like biblical hermeneutics or exegesis here. It's sort of like ah uh, belief is still important. You know what I mean? Like I you and I are teachers, we're preachers, so like we care about doctrine and theology. So so please don't hear either of us say like belief right. doesn't matter as long as you belong. Like that's not at all we're saying. And I you know I think wrong beliefs or even just wrong attitudes can lead to all sorts of other horrific things in our life I think the trajectory can be you know problematic so that's not at all what I'm saying what I do think is interesting though and I would love to see maybe like a follow-up study I think environments where there there are trust there is trust tend to be where people learn the most robustly so is it possible mm-hmm. it's almost like a long game versus a short game where the short game is like we need to you need to believe the right thing you need to really and we kind of hammer them with that like what if? creating environments of trust is actually what leads to like a real true deepening sense of belief that is more sustainable that has, that is, is planted in richer soil or whatever metaphor you want to use. Like I feel like belief uh, apart from trust is certainly possible, right? Like you can learn stuff by yourself on a mountaintop and come to healthy God honoring scripturally sound beliefs. I just wonder if particularly in like a church community context, if we maybe, I don't know, downplayed belonging at the detriment of long term trust and belief. And again, I have no idea if that's true or not, but I I think it's very possible.
1: Yeah. And I think something you and I have both found in churches, uh, like we've talked about, we are both parts of churches with community in the name. Like we want people connecting to each other. Uh, and it's not often even a belonging over belief, but, uh, but I think something that we've both found and many people have written on is that belonging often precedes belief. That, that, that oftentimes people don't go, Oh, I'm a, I'm a sinner who's lost. Oh, I found it here. Now I'm going to enter into a church to learn more. That happens. But oftentimes it's, you know, somebody cared for me. Somebody showed me love. You know, somebody I connected with this group, this person or this group of people. And they felt like they belonged, like they had a they had some people, and then eventually that led them to uh, finding, you know, asking questions of faith, hearing the gospel, and believing uh, in 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 uh, the doctrine of you know in Christianity and becoming putting their faith in Jesus. So it's not even like an, an either or. It's oftentimes I think a lot of times in churches, and it certainly happens, but a lot of times in churches we think. If belief first, then they get into the church and then they find their people, they belong. Uh, yeah. But what I think a lot of good research is showing uh, is no belonging becomes uh, a doorway to belief towards those questions, towards that trust. And they actually hold hands together. Uh, and, and I think that becomes an important point. There might be people out there listening right now going, I don't. You know, you know, I, when they hear that idea of belonging, that, that's very attractive to them. And so I, I think that's an important thing for us to realize as church. A lot of times we're like, we just need people to accept this, this, this doctrine or this dogma or whatever else. But in fact, a lot of times, uh, it's, it's show them that you care before you, you know, tell them what you think. And, and I think that's an important thing that, that we get wrong sometimes.
0: And I do think, and this isn't like a, A full fledged prediction, but I think because of what you said, I think we're going to see an increase in what maybe you would call micro expressions going forward, not just because Mm -hmm. of the pandemic, although the pandemic, I think has certainly accelerated that. But if you're if you're right, then is it possible because you conceive of a future, you know, five, 10, 15 years down the road where. People are belonging in some kind of what you might call a community group or a small group where they're meeting with people, you know, in a living room once a week. And they're like, I don't know how I feel about any of this, but, but like we break bread with these 10 people every week and they've they've kind of become my people. Mm-hmm. So they there is a sense of and They're like, I'm not sure if I'm ready to go to your like main event on Sunday yet. Right. But this is where I find belonging where historically it's been like come to the event and then we'll eventually get you. Plugged into a small group. I've heard that language right. so often. I'm like, I think it's it. It seems very possible, and I have no idea if it's true. That it might start actually working the other way around, where people are finding community uh, in their own neighborhoods, where they find like true belonging and vulnerability, and that's sort of the that's what leads them to begin exploring. Like, why are you guys so hospitable, and why are you so <laughs> patient with my questions? I don't find this anymore. I think that's going to be a really, really interesting sort of missiological turn. In the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I could be way, way wrong. But uh, I think this article is fascinating. This idea of social religion in general. There's a lot in there. Highly recommend you read the whole thing and check it out. It's on our Facebook page at Common Good Talk. And we would love to know what you think. Coming up next, though, a, uh, a segment I'm simply calling Twitter time. I have a bunch of quotes. We're not going to get there's to all of them. I'm going I'm to let Brian choose them at random. And then uh, we'll respond for as much time as we have. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ryan and Ian's Twitter time. They're going to dive into the Twitter time. (laughs) So that is our very own uh, Debbie bringing us in from uh, from the break. I'm not supposed to call it a break, am I? Nope. Uh, well, That's okay. I already did. It's okay. Mo- mo- moving on. We, I uh, I warned. Warned is that the right word? I don't want to make it sound like this is going to be a bad thing. It might be a bad thing. I've affectionately called this segment Twitter Time, and I just the last week or so saw a bunch of really I thought provocative or insightful, pretty punchy. That's kind of what Twitter you know is often known for, for better or for worse. These like one sentence, two sentence quotes, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I put a bunch in there. My guess is when I say I'm going to let Brian choose it at random, he's going to go exactly in order, like from top I'm to not. bottom. Okay. No, I picked so a random one to click on. I'm so proud of you. So they're all open in your browser. You picked one at random. Go ahead and read it, and then we'll respond, and then I'll let you pick another one for as much time as we have.
1: All right. This guy, his name is Matt Smethurst. Smethurst. He's managing editor of the Gospel Coalition and author of Before You Open Your Bible. He wrote, well, he quoted Trevin Wax as saying this. When we say we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we must remember what happened to the hands and feet of Jesus. Oh, man, <laughs> that's starting strong right there. I mean, that's it's such a nice saying we say in churches all the time. Well, let's be the hands and feet of Jesus. I've said it a million times, and it's a great thing to want to say. I think that from Trevin Wax and tweeted by Matt Smithhurst here is a uh, is a great reminder that, uh, when we say we want to be like Jesus, what would Jesus do? We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Remember how Jesus was treated. Cause we often talk about our rights and we, everybody needs to treat us well and this and that. And, and that the one whom we are following, uh, was not treated well, his hands and feet, you know, he was hung on a cross. And I think this is a great reminder. And, uh, Uh, sometimes people can say things so succinctly on twitter that it's a it's a really good quote there
0: yeah it's it's interesting because i thought it was going to go a different direction because i I made a statement years ago where i said um if we're to be the hands and feet of jesus and i believe that we are is it possible that sometimes when we say things like i'm going to leave it in god's hands that it means that we're also to participate like is that you know Uh, (laughs) sometimes there's like uh, a cognitive distance like i'm just gonna leave it in his, his hands yet like a minute earlier you said that we're his hands so mm-hmm. <laughs> at what point are we are we abandoning our responsibility or you know is it a let let go and let God situation all right I'll let you pick another one all right Simon cynic
1: Simon cynic yes. he said ambition is refusing to quit on ourselves leadership is refusing to quit on others Ooh. you
0: react Ian Simpkins go I love that I uh, I'm sure again it's Twitter so someone might be picking it apart i'm sure it's in the comment section like sometimes you need to quit on others though and you need to let go of people that are not good for the team i'm like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's a two-sentence quote but i yeah i i think that he's especially good at some of these kind of one-off quips and it is it is interesting because there's such a such a uh almost like a market saturation around things that have to do with ambition right now mm-hmm. and that's not just twitter that's instagram it feels like everywhere i go like oh man you're best you blah 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 and that's and that's fine. And, you know, New Year's resolutions and stay fit and read more books. I'm, I'm for all of that. I do like – I don't think I've ever seen it quite this way, juxtaposing ambition with leadership because obviously I don't think anyone would think that great leaders aren't also ambitious. That's that's what's so interesting to me about how mm-hmm. this is juxtaposed because you can be ambitious and be a terrible leader. And you can You can be a leader and not have a lot of ambition. You probably – won't necessarily i don't know do you think that you can be a great leader without having any ambition at all uh i don't this is this is weird for me to say because sometimes
1: i'm like how ambitious am i (laughs) but i think you can be overly ambitious but if you're just like yeah you know i'm good with everything as exactly as it is it's people it's it's hard to inspire people to follow that so no you need you need at least a good healthy dose of ambition for sure
0: yeah i think you're right either way the juxtaposition of Refusing to quit on ourselves versus refusing to quit on others. I just I felt so personally inspired by that. Like, yeah, who are the people that need to know that I have, I'm not quitting on them? Like, I'm I'm still in the corner. And that's the kind of thing that as a leader, I want to, you know, kind of always keep out in front. All right. you want to pick another one. Uh, Alan Hirsch, who we have quoted
1: many times, uh, but here he's actually quoting Peter Drucker. Uh, Peter Drucker, right? Well-known leadership guru, right? Yeah, I think yeah. I got that right. Uh, Peter Drucker wrote and Alan Hirsch tweeted. The greatest danger in times of turbulence is not the turbulence. It is to act with yesterday's logic. Not a bad one. That's not a bad one. All right, so how, does that,
0: how does that hit you as a church planner or somebody uh, who, you know, given your particular line of work in the midst of a pandemic, a topic that we've talked a lot about having to move to digital and then more of a hybrid thing and thinking through strategies for the future? How does how does what Peter Drucker, who wasn't a pastor, uh, mm-hmm. how does that insight? Hit you where you're at. It's it's really helpful. I This is
1: the way my life works right now. I'm like, did I have this conversation with someone else or did you and I talk about this on the radio yesterday or the day before? Right. But it was this idea of always doing what used to work versus looking forward. Uh, when we talked yesterday about messaging and methods, uh, mission and method, that's what it was. It was Carrie Newhoff. and. Yes, right. Uh, Basically, the idea being we get stuck in our methods so often, what used to work, and then it doesn't work now, but we aren't willing to give up that method uh, for the sake of what might move the mission forward here. And so this idea that the turbulence isn't always the problem, it's like, you know what, I'm going to do with what worked yesterday or a year ago or, uh, you know, in my case with our church 10 years ago when we first started or whatever else, That then that puts you – that could put you in great danger because, because the world has changed. Things have changed. Mm-hmm your business has changed your work has changed whatever else it might be so uh it's a great reminder it's like again what we talked about with newhoff uh the other day that that yeah you hold fast to your mission but but your methodology uh has to be on the table you got to be able to uh scrap methodology and bring in new methodology and not always just ha- hang on to what worked yesterday in this in this quote
0: yeah and i would add too that the turbulence doesn't always need to be external either like we had a guy come in and do a a couple of day training with our yellow box team. And we were talking, I think more specifically from the the posture of Myers-Briggs and personality types and all that. He's like the tendency human nature is to just kind of gravitate towards a bunch of people wired just like you. And he was, he was referencing a study. I think it was a NASA study actually, where they or they they had like, it was like a a flight simulation of, uh, of landing a plane and the teams that had an entire crew of really, really similarly wired people versus like a whole, with a whole gaggle of very different people. The the group with like vastly different types of personality types performed better every single time. And there was turbulence. Ooh. There was conflict because people saw things differently. But in a lot of ways, it was that turbulence, that friction, even that actually led to a better end product, a better execution, rather than like, hey, we all kind of see this the same way. And uh, I think that's I think that's a helpful thing to keep out in front. All right, we got time yeah. for one more, Brian, and maybe we'll take the leftovers and do them, you know, next week or something.
1: All right. I clicked on Dan White Jr., who we've talked about before, for sure. Uh, Dan White tweeted this. Uh, this one's going to hurt us, man. Be ready. <laughs> Be ready for a punch. Uh, the state of the American church, he writes, the act of preaching is overrated and the, at, the art of discipleship is neglected.
0: <laughs> Pastor Ian Simpkins, <laughs> please reflect upon that. I, personally and this is semantics i probably would have replaced neglected with underrated because i don't think i don't think uh even in the environments that i'm aware of where like the act of preaching is probably overrated i don't think they're outright ignoring or neglecting discipleship it's probably just undervalued and by undervalued i mean also probably <laughs> underfunded under prioritized all those things but maybe not outright neglected i don't i don't know I, it almost feels like it's Almost feels right now like it's a little cool to slam preaching. Mm-hmm. And obviously you yeah. and I are preachers, so like we value preaching. But I, I think the stuff that I mean, Dan White is is way near the top of the list for me of guys who are like consistently articulating what is a really important truth. Any yeah. any thoughts on your end in the last ten seconds?
1: Yeah, it's a hard one because here's the deal preaching. Is certainly really important within the church. I think you and I both fully believe that. I like that he called discipleship an art because I think a lot of times it's undervalued in the church or neglected because it's hard to get your arms around. Like it's hard to measure. It's hard to know how to. We all know how to preach. I make a message, uh, we make it as creative and compelling as possible. We pray over it. I get up, I do it. You know, hopefully it, it makes a difference. And that's important. The idea of discipleship is so important, but so squishy, so hard to get your arms around that that if you ask 10 pastors, they have 10 different kind of definitions and ideas and programs. And that's why it's so often, that's why it's an art form. It is certainly something that's difficult within the church.
0: Well, uh, all of these, and yeah, that's a lot to take in. They're up at our Facebook page and we've retweeted them and whatnot. Uh, We'd love to know what you think. Maybe we'll Share some of the other ones next week sometime, but uh, we would love to know. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Is it too reductionistic? Is that just the nature of social media and that's what we're left with? We would love to know what you think. Coming up next, though, here's something that I'm sure won't be relevant to anybody. The science of reasoning with unreasonable people. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Uh, I really found this article at New York Times fascinating. The headline reads, The Science of Reasoning with Unreasonable People. Here's the subheading. Don't try to change someone else's mind. Instead, help them find their own motivation to change. So Mm. that probably sounds maybe a little too good to be true. Maybe by the end of the segment, it will feel too good to be true. But uh, this article by Adam Grant, I thought was at the very least fascinating. Why don't you get us into it, Brian?
1: Yeah, Adam Grant writes, uh, A few years ago, I made the mistake of having an argument with the most stubborn person I know. He just calls him R. R, whose initial I'm using to protect his privacy, is a longtime friend. And when his family came to visit, he mentioned that his children had never been vaccinated and never would be. He said, I'm no proponent of blindly giving every vaccination to every newborn, but I was concerned for his child's safety. So I started uh, talking to him. After days of debate, I was exhausted and exacerbated. Then came 2020. Fear of the vaccine may be the greatest barrier to stopping COVID nineteen. Uh, he writes, it stretches far beyond the so called anti vaxxer community. I decided to see if I could get I could open R's mind to the possibility of the vaccine. What I didn't realize was that my mind would be opened as well. See, as an organizational psychologist, I've spent the past few years studying how to motivate people to think again. I've run experiments that led proponents of gun rights and gun safety to abandon some of their mutual animosity. Mm -hmm. I even got Yankee fans to let go of their grudges against Red Sox supporters. But I don't (laughs) always practice what I teach. When someone seems closed-minded, my instinct is to argue the polar opposite of their position. But when I go on the attack, my opponents either shut down or fight back harder. Or more than one occasion, I've been called a, quote, logic bully. When we try to change a person's mind, our first impulse is to preach about why we're right and prosecute them for being wrong. Yet experiments show that preaching and prosecuting typically backfire and what doesn't sway people may strengthen their beliefs. Uh, refuting a point of view produces antibodies against future attempts at influence, making people more certain of their own opinions and more, uh, more ready to rebut alternatives. All right, let's think about that. Ian, what do you think uh, his, his consensus, his uh, findings there that to argue with someone, because this plays into so much about what's going on on social media and in our culture today, but that to argue with someone is actually going to probably push them uh, more into what they believe right now, that you're not going to convince them as much as you're basically going to push one another into your polls. What do you think about that?
0: Well, I, I'm kind of hung up on a part that I shouldn't be, and that's every time the word preach is used outside of the church context, it's always negative. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, hey, I don't want to preach at you. And I'm like, oh, man, it's like what I do for a living. That's like my whole. All right. all right. So it is unfortunate. That's probably a whole other segment for another day that like, yeah, the culture as a whole has not adopted a positive posture toward, toward preaching. What I do appreciate, not just about what he's sharing and what he's finding. And he's talking uh, about the psychological immune system. I think that's super interesting to me. I also appreciate him kind of admitting like, man, this is the kind of thing that I've written about and implemented and often forget to do in my own life. (laughs) That as a pastor resonates so deeply. Like you just preached on patients like two hours ago. And now you're like losing it on your kid. What do you, you know, like that? That level of uh, of disconnect is is very, very real. But I think he's right, and I think him even owning like what our what our natural like knee jerk reaction when when we find that somebody is wrong. But how does he say it here? Or uh, when we try to change a person's mind, our first impulse is to preach about why we're right and prosecute them for being wrong. Right. I don't know that I necessarily feel the prosecute side nearly as much, but there is certainly a, a guarded a guarded level of like I need to really I need to convince you just how right I am. And I'll be so convincing that it won't won't even be an argument. He goes on to say that several decades ago when treating substance abuse problems, psychologists developed a technique called motivational interviewing, the central premise. Instead of trying to force other people to change, you're better off helping them find their own intrinsic motivation to change. You do that by interviewing them, asking open-ended questions and listening carefully and holding up a mirror so they can see their own thoughts more clearly. If they express a desire to change, you guide them toward a plan. So he, he gives some examples here that I think are pretty interesting. I imagine for some people that might feel too squishy, right? Or too, yeah. I could hear someone saying that ah, new aging. No, it's not. I can't wait for them to decide they need to change. Like we, this is an intervention. And and there are probably times where that kind of, where an intervention really is necessary. But I, I don't know. There's something about the idea. And I think this is what like really good counselors and therapists do. Like, you know what? I'm going to ask you some really open-ended questions. And then I'm just going to reflect back to you what i heard you say and you tell me if i'm right or not and that tends to be at least in my very limited like pastoral counseling experience it's like oh yeah there's like revelation upon revelation that people have just hearing their own words back to them Mm -hmm, sometimes mm -hmm. i'm like oh gosh you just needed someone to bounce it back to you that's all you really needed you know i think i think that's pretty interesting so the other night i went out uh to dinner, I took out
1: my 17 year old daughter. Okay. Uh, for no real purpose other than just to be like, Hey, I love to go out with my daughter and, you know, try to go on dates with my kids. And, uh, this is, I bring this up to say this, what he's talking about here. There are times as a parent, especially when the kids are younger, that I had to tell them or have to tell them, or my wife does, like, no, you're going to do this or Th- we're right about this. But what, when we can find opportunities to help them get there. <laughs> like, and, mm-hmm. and like you said, it feels squishy. And here's the danger. He's going to talk about this later in the article. They don't always get there. Uh, but, but when I, as a parent can get, uh, can help my daughter see something that maybe uh, I could either tell her or take the time to help discuss with her and get her there. Uh, one of those lasts a lot longer than the other. And yeah, and I think that's sure. what he's getting at. And you also said it from, you know, pastoral counseling. Sometimes people just have to talk it through. Uh, and, and get there. And, and so I do think this is so important. The, the scary part is, like I said, he's going to say this later that, uh, that he had to get to the point, his anti vaccine guy, uh, he had to meet with a doctor and this and that, and it didn't change his mind. And right. so sometimes this kind of thing doesn't work necessarily. I'm using work as in quotes. If the goal mm-hmm. is to get them to change their mind, uh, and it also takes time. Right. It takes some time and some work versus just telling somebody, hey, this is what you have to do. You're wrong. Quit being an idiot. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but 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 it's compelling, like whether it be your kids or, uh, you know, like you said, pastoral counseling or just a debate. Uh, this kind of thing seems to be what's going to have a lasting impact in people's lives.
0: Yeah, I like how he ends this. And it's it's really pretty. Pretty succinct. And I would be curious to know, Brian, as a person of faith, if uh, if you can sign off on this or if there's some caveats mm-hmm. you would want to add. He uh, I no longer believe it's my place to change anyone's mind. All I can do is try to understand their thinking and ask if they're open to some rethinking. The rest is up to them. I know that's not the perspective necessarily of this article, but as a, as a pastor, do you find that you can agree with all or, or any of that? Uh, yeah. And I get why it might make people uncomfortable. But how many times
1: in churches do we rightfully say it's not my job to save somebody? Right. It's it's the Holy Spirit's job. It's my job to love people, to maybe present the gospel to them, to to use the uh, Dave and John Ferguson, their bless strategy. It's my job to tell my story. Yeah. But it's ultimately not my job to win somebody, convince them, debate them into the kingdom that that's the Holy Spirit's job. And so uh, you know, when he says, you know, we can pick and choose, you know, we can nitpick what he said there, but that's kind of what we say from pulpits, right? I have to it's not my job to change their minds. It's my job to uh to share my story, to help them understand, to love them the way that Jesus has called me to love them, and pray for them and pray that the Holy Spirit will do a powerful work in there. So yeah, for because of that, I can I can sign up for that for that posture.
0: I would probably maybe add a caveat. I do think there's an added Mantle of responsibility for anyone who's a teacher or leader to at some point and to, you know, let people know like, hey, this, I might change my mind. I might be presented with new information. The Holy Spirit might convict me in a different way. But like if you if you have the responsibility of preaching, say, hey, at, at least as of right now, like I, I believe this to be true. And this mm-hmm. has been what I found in my research, what I believe to be illuminated by the spirit of God or has resonated, you know, based on agreement of our elders or whatever your, you know, your polity looks like. I I wonder if maybe there doesn't need to be a small asterisk, I guess, if you're charged with the task of like leading people. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I, overall, again, I think, I think his premise is really helpful and one that is certainly timely. Like, can you imagine how much quieter social media would be if, uh, if we even had just an (laughs) iota of willingness to kind of take this approach? So either way, like everything and almost ironically, that's up at our Facebook page at common good talk. We'd love to know what you think. Coming up next, two articles, unrelated. The first one we'll spend just a little bit of time, but it's a teen who's coming out of a, a coma right now, and he's actually he's actually been unconscious for the duration of the pandemic. So it's a pretty fascinating story. And then we're going to talk about the Pope a little bit. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope Your Life. Coming up this hour, a teenage boy is just now emerging from a 10-month coma. And let's talk about the delightful distraction of Bernie memes. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so glad that you are here. So I want us to really focus more on this second link Ryan, but I just couldn't pass up I know this first one from HuffPost I don't you saw this around I'm sure uh the, I mean I guess the headline kind of describes the whole thing British teen emerging from 10 month coma with no knowledge of COVID-19 pandemic can you I mean obviously emerging from a coma in general has got to be just the most bizarre I got put under for the very first time in my entire life just for this knee surgery and that uh-huh. threw me off and that was just like an hour and a half. Can you even imagine 10 months and something like what has happened has happened since the time that you've been unconscious and you're like, wait, what? Like how weird must that be?
1: It's gotta be so strange. He was hit by a car on, on March the 1st and has been in a coma ever since. And one of the, to add to the strangeness of this while he was in the coma, uh, he got it said he got COVID-19 twice, which I didn't even know was possible. Uh, and so while in the coma, he, he got COVID. So not only did he not know about it, but he didn't know he had it. And now he comes Yikes. out of the coma. What would you say to the person as you're trying to explain it to him? Like, yeah, we all had to kind of go in the quarantine. Our whole yeah. lives shut down kind of right after you got hit by the car. <laughs> I can't imagine just being in a coma. It's like every bad movie, right? Where you're like, oh, I've been asleep yeah. for two years or whatever. But then they come out and be like, hey, mom, what did I miss? And like, let me explain this thing called COVID would be so straight. And then on top of it, and by the way, you had it is just nuts. It's just crazy.
0: I got to circle back to something. Did you think that being in a coma made you immune to viruses? Is that how you thought? No, but I'm trying to picture him. They're explaining what COVID
1: is. And then they're like, oh, by the way, you also had it. <laughs> right. So, uh, no, no. I knew being in a coma didn't make you immune. But uh, <laughs> it would just I'm saying the weirdness once you wake up. Not only, hey, you missed this worldwide pandemic, but you also had it in the meantime. What's just been such a weird deal. Like, wait, I never heard of this, but I had it. And all these yeah. people are dying from it. It just. And I've been asleep for this many months. Ma- it's just got to be nuts.
0: Yeah, it has got to be incredibly strange. What doesn't uh, John Mulaney have a bit about coming out of a coma? Oh no, his is more about amnesia. Like whenever you see like a depiction of someone with amnesia, and you know someone comes in close that you're you know you're supposed to know, and they always shout like, "Who are you?" He's like, "That's not realistic because that's not what you scream at people under normal circumstances if you don't know who they are. You don't just scream." <laughs> Who are you? And every stranger you come in contact with, I thought, yeah, that's a that's a good point. All right, so I, there's not a whole lot to say there. Other than that, that's just a wild story. I really yeah. wanted to, to dive into this from uh, America, the Jesuit Review, not just because our show's name is in the headline. It says inside Pope Francis's mission to make capitalism work for the common good. There's so much there. You got you mm-hmm. got the Pope, you got mission, you got capitalism, and you got common good. There's a there's a lot there. Uh, I'm going to let you kind of. W- weigh us into the deep end a bit.
1: Yeah, it says the Vatican has always enchanted princes and presidents, but Pope Francis is the first leader in the Catholic Church's 2000 year history to engage frequently with a more modern type of ruler, the chief executive officer. More than any previous pontiff, Francis has been lobbied by CEOs to soften his skepticism about capitalism, and he in turn has pressed them to better serve the poor and the planet. Surprisingly, he has joined the debate now in fashion about reforming capitalism, a discussion propelled by the 2008 financial crisis, rising income inequality and climate change. The list of companies whose leaders have made a pilgrimage to Rome, this is fascinating, is the Harvard Business Review Index, Uh, like the Harvard, like a Harvard Business Review Index are these companies, Apple, Bank of America. BlackRock, Exxon, Facebook, Google, McKinsey and News Corporation, to only name a few. The Vatican has also met with pension fund managers to help them invest, invest more ethically, worked on redesigning the curricula of business schools at Catholic universities and organized roundtables at the World Economic Forum. Uh, and so it goes on to say how how Pope Francis has tried to say, uh <laughs> Interestingly, a lot of people have taken lots of shots at him over this, but he's trying to say, hey, capitalism uh, needs to be viewed, especially in his view by Catholics, as a way to not make more money for myself, but to help more people a- and to use that money, as you said, for the common good. And like they said here, not any other popes have done it to this extent. And he gets a lot of pushback. I've read articles where people Mm -hmm. claim that the pope is a socialist, a communist, uh, and other Catholics have wrestled with what are are we supposed to follow him. Uh, And so it's interesting to see the leader of the Catholic Church, the pope, kind of take aim at capitalism and say this is what it needs to be.
0: So I like what it says here. The Fortune 500s dance with the Vatican underscores the difficulty of turning the ideal of economic dignity for every human, a cornerstone of Catholic thought, into reality. I actually don't know that I knew economic dignity for every human was a cornerstone of Catholic thought, but I like it. And I, yeah. I'm curious, uh, maybe this isn't worth pontificating on, like, why don't we hear more about that in, in Protestant evangelical circles?
1: You know, I think that we often have separated. And I think this is changing, right? We we read a lot of stuff where people are talking about work and worship and how do we worship. But I think traditionally, correct me if I'm wrong. I think traditionally, uh, there's been a big separation between uh, between business and church, the uh, the secular and the spiritual. Money and and there shouldn't be. The Bible has a lot to say about this, uh, but I think that's it. I think there's a lot of different. You know, people have differentiated their Sunday from their Monday through Saturday. Uh, And that's why I think the pope is kind of ruffling some feathers here, because most people are used to that. Like, wait a minute. The pope is speaking into my investment strategy or how I set up my business. This feels like he's overstepping his bounds when in reality, Scripture has a lot to say about, you know, how we treat the poor, our views of money. But also that all everything we do is to be seen as worship. So that's my guess. Do you have another guess as to why this hasn't happened in Protestant circles?
0: No, I, I just think it's it's probably really necessary. Like the article goes on to say, the COVID-19 work-from-home economy has crushed small businesses while juicing profits for big tech and big retail. Amazon and Walmart, quote, earned an extra, ready for it? Mm-hmm. $10.7 billion over last year's profits during and largely because of the pandemic, according to a report by the Brookings Institute. So like therein lies at least some of the problem, right? Like, I don't know that you necessarily need to be Uh, ideologically fully against capitalism at every turn to at least read that and go, Mm -hmm. "Hmm, all right, maybe the way of Jesus has something to say about that. Maybe that doesn't totally sit well with me. Obviously is a much longer article and there's a whole lot that's personally like way over my head, but like what's a, what's a takeaway that you would leave people with to at least kind of consider, I guess, regardless of their camp right now, regardless of where they feel they land on kind of the e- economic spectrum.
1: Yeah. Not to be too pithy or flippant here, but it calls to mind the well-known saying, put your money where your mouth is. I feel like that's what the Pope is saying here. Like you say, you believe this, you say you follower of Jesus. Uh, and we can all feel this, whether you're a CEO or just, you know, I'm just uh, somebody who who has, is trying to make money in my life. Uh, put your money where your mouth is. That, that Jesus constantly talks to us about, uh, you know, looking out for the least of these? And how can we reach out? And, and and so I think what the Pope is saying, and it's ruffled a lot of feathers, is uh, even if you run a corporation, how does your Catholicism, in his case, how are you going to use what you're doing uh, to advance the common good? I think that's a real challenge, whether you run a business or you're just, you know, somebody who has a job. I think to think in those terms is really convicting.
0: Well, and we obviously believe in the concept enough to name a show after, but I, I do think that there is something worth – like, what what would change in our culture and society if we ran all of our decisions through that filter, macro and micro? Mm-hmm. Like, how, do, mm-hmm. how does this contribute to the common good? Like, often, it's about me and mine, or at the very least, you know, me and my family. Like, that's, that's who I'm looking out for, and I'm not I'm – Totally opposed to that, but like, gosh, if we could just think through like, how does this affect my, let's say my block, my neighborhood, my community, my church, my small group, whatever. I think uh, that kind of perspective at the very least for Jesus followers is, is an important one, a challenging one, but one that I think is, is always, always, always worth the effort. All right. Coming up next. I know that we already talked about it once. (laughs) We probably talked about it twice, actually three times. might be too many, but I just, I found this article to be so interesting. The delightful distraction of Bernie memes. That's coming up next year on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins along with Brian Fromm. I thought this article was fascinating. So, again, it's just a meme, I and mean, we totally understand that. And we had pontificated a little bit like, ah, it's kind of interesting that this was the thing that blew up but we didn't you know really take a deep dive on it but it's a it's a concept that i found really interesting about distraction and how distract because often distraction and we've talked a lot on the show even how distraction is really unhelpful and keeps us from achieving our goals and you know maintaining focus but sometimes i think distraction can actually be really necessary and really helpful and so this is from a a guest contributor over at mockingbird and it says the delightful distraction of Bernie memes, and this comes from a comedian named Ben Fort. You want to get us into it?
1: Yeah. So he starts the first two paragraphs of this article talking about the Bernie memes, just how it's crazy, how they've gone everywhere from the inauguration, and then he says, "Memes come and go, but this one has remar- ha- was remarkable for being about a politician without being political. The mm-hmm. joke stared a staunch progressive, uh, starred a staunch progressive, but involved no position, no allegiance, no heroes, no villains." My conservative friends enjoyed playing along without worrying about, quote, sending a message. It was nothing more than a delightful distraction. And in today's political climate, that feels like a small miracle. And now he's going to kind of get into more of the meat here. He says at the height of the 2020 George Floyd protest, comedian uh, W. Kamau Bell spoke with NPR about the role of humor in the midst of turbulence. He said some people right now need comedy that distracts them from all of this stuff. And then there's a kind of comedy that helps you process what's going on in the world. In the midst of difficulty, humor can give us a break from the darkness uh, or or name it. Give us a break from the darkness or name it. Let me pause there. There's a lot more that we're going to get into. You were the first one who kind of said this on our show. I remember year, uh, two years ago we had on um, – who was that comedian? Um, Michael Jr. Thank you. And he was phenomenal. Uh, But I remember the conversation we had with them where you said uh, comedians are kind of like prophets of our day and also that comedy helps be a distraction. Uh, And so do you think that uh, this is a comedian writing this, this article? Do you think that that's part of why the Bernie memes went crazy? Because capital riots inauguration all of this all of this division all of this anger that that there was something both unifying and distracting about oh just something silly that we could all laugh about in the midst of all of this
0: yeah I, I think that humor this is a big part of why honestly I like to incorporate humor in preaching now mm-hmm. I also am a, a firm believer in like the significance of authenticity from the pulpit so if you're like not if you normally wouldn't be making jokes don't like try and make them from the pulpit. You know like it be yourself. I think that's a I think that's probably a higher value. But I think that humor in a lot of ways and this is kind of what the article is going to go on to uh to elaborate on, at the very least it can be incredibly disarming. You know, like if I'm listening to someone else and they have me laughing but then they hit me with a pretty profound truth, I'm way more receptive to it and I think that there's brain science to back this up. If, I've, if my guard's a little bit down because because I'm laughing. And I think in a year that has been so tumultuous, so difficult, so dark in so many ways. And, and we have mentioned on the show a lot the significance of lament. And this is why I sometimes feel like we're talking out of both sides of our mouth. Because I'm like, yes, we do sometimes jump far too quickly to celebration and victory and winning and up and to the right. I also think there can be a, a dark side of that sometimes, too, if we if we just linger if we like set up shop in lament and sorrow and grief sometimes we need those those moments of levity to you know the way we talk about our community is like come up for some air you know whenever we're like writing sermons we're always like man great content but you don't get to come up for air at all in 25 minutes and and that maybe is needed in a sermon or in a lecture or you know in the case of this article just in life and that's part of why i think you're right the, the Bernie memes landed at such a perfect time because it was sort of like right or left, progressive, conservative, whatever. Everyone was feeling this collective sense of, yeah, we could use just a little bit of lighthearted unifying right now. Like that could – and I'm not saying it has any kind of like long-term lasting benefits necessarily, but I just – I find the whole premise fascinating.
1: Yeah, and as, an, as a comedian, the author of this article – He goes on to say that the last couple of years have been really hard uh, and like wearing out for comedians because it's all been about the president. Uh, And he said, if you're a Trump critic, Alec Baldwin's Saturday Night Live impersonations were a kind of purgatory, reminding you of your stress (laughs) without lifting you out of it. Hmm. Uh, So think about the here's a crazy stat. He said, by one professor's count out of the six thousand three hundred and thirty seven late night jokes in 2017, so the late night shows. Forty nine percent were about the president. For reference, Mm. there were seventeen hundred late night Clinton jokes in 1998. And so his his point is also as a comedian, all that we talked about and this is on them too. all that was talking about was the president. And it got overwhelming. Uh, And he said, if you wanted an escape late night, wasn't the place for it. So he says, for those professional jokers, a new presidency is a fresh start and a change to change the ratio. Uh, and he says, the Bernie meme reminds us of another option. We don't have to avoid politicians to have silly fun. It's OK to view them as people instead of ideas to just giggle at their huge mittens without making a point. <laughs> it's been done with recent presidents like Key Peel's anger translator, uh, which played with the limits of Obama's chill demeanor. Past SNL presidents have been more playful, like Will Ferrell's. Uh, charmingly aloof George W. Bush. And we almost got four years of Kate McKinnon's hilariously awkward Hillary Clinton. He says, he closes this way this kind of delightful distraction reminds us that politicians are more than politics. They mm. sometimes sit weird and dress weird. <laughs> they have peculiar habits and strange interactions with friends, family, and coworkers. Yes, we need breaks and need powerful people to be kept in check. But the more we can see and laugh at people, at politicians as people, the better. So he ends by saying one of the endearing parts of the Bernie meme was it wasn't about the politics. You could just look at this guy sitting cross cross armed with these mittens on and just laugh and just have a giggle. And not everything has to be a referendum on the ideas of the president or this or that. And he's kind of saying, hopefully, in this next administration, things will change. We'll see if they do. Uh, But I think interesting. Uh, To to think about that from the views of a of a comedian about why this Bernie meme kind of went crazy in this specific time in our history.
0: Yeah, and I think too, it's worth noting. There's um there's different subcategories even under comedy or humor like you know, he references Dave Chappelle, who for a long time, you know, sort of his style is to go right at the issues, kind of wrestle with the topics of the day via comedy, and how there's value in that too. You know, Carlin was notorious for kind of pulling back the curtain on things that, you know, were happening in the world at that time, and then kind of sharing his opinion, sometimes in funny, but also sometimes in very biting kinds of ways. I think there's a place for that as well. And I think that can be prophetic in in its own sense. But like, I, I want to at least acknowledge sometimes I can struggle with like really giving space for just sort of the silly. You're like, yeah, what, what's mm-hmm. the point of that? Mm-hmm. I obviously didn't struggle in the Bernie meme category because I <laughs> tweeted, yes. you know, 20 of them, but there, I think there is something really, really worthwhile there to, to consider. Man, is it possible? And maybe in a, in a more micro way, like, yeah, sometimes just. Outright silliness for the sake of silliness. Like I have a three and two year old right now. Sometimes we just like dance and sing silly songs mm-hmm. for no reason whatsoever. They're not learning anything, but like we're we're bonding in that moment, even if it just lasts a minute. And I think sometimes, just sometimes, these little distractions can be a real gift to us. So that article is up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think there. Coming up next from the Gospel Coalition, how to weather... The Worsening Trust Crisis. That's from Brett McCracken coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Brian, you still with me? You having a good time? Hanging I'm having in. a
1: great time today. Doing a good, what's, a good show. If I must say your, so myself, good show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what did you? What did you used to say? You Used to have something early on when we started where you would talk about your opinion of the show during the show. Do you? You, you remember what I'm recalling? I don't. I. Don't. Uh, I'll have to go back and listen to some old tape. Just, you know, the, the, <laughs> go those get the, the reels those, out <laughs> those are the ones that we recorded reported on reels yeah that was <laughs> people are like isn't the show like two years old like what yep yep What the technology that i'm working with uh, i probably should i should i do holidays i think this is a good spot for it i do you think this is before we get into like a pretty serious article from the gospel coalition yes i do all right. let's well, let's do here's he a couple of serious ones it's world cancer day mm-hmm. internationally i'm assuming okay. we're not yeah, yeah i don't know what you do for that uh, it's farmer's day in taiwan it's National Day in Sri Lanka. There's, <laughs> what is this thing? <laughs> is there a translation issue? Just National Day? It's just national, national Day. Okay. That is, that is pretty wild. Uh, it is National Hemp Day. Mm. So there's that. Uh, yep. National Thank-A-Mail Carrier Day. Oh, that's a good one. National Homemade Soup Day. I like soup. How can you even say that, though? There's just too many categories of soup. Here's a here's a debate, though, that a buddy of mine have been having for a while, though. Is soup a full meal? I think soup is a full
1: lunch. It's when you get into the <laughs> dinner realm that becomes more difficult. Although, uh, are you familiar with the restaurant Zoop, where it's like a soup bar? You know what the one I'm talking about? I love uh, the way you said it, though. It's called soup, so it's like you could go in <laughs> and you could try the soups, and then you choose one. And my daughter and I on Tuesday night went there, uh, kind of like going out on a little date and to go talk. And we both only got soup, and you could have gotten sandwiches and salad. So what I'm telling you is, on Tuesday night, my dinner was just soup. So I have to say yes. It can be a meal.
0: <laughs> you don't have to say yes. That's a, I mean this is a this is an existential question. Yes. Okay. Well, I support that. I guess it's, I I, I have no idea how you're supposed to celebrate this national create a vacuum day,
1: (laughs) create a vacuum day. (laughs) Okay.
0: I'm assuming like, not the, not like the clean the floor item, but like a vacuum, like a vacuum seal.
1: I I would think you're correct about that. Yes. I don't
0: know how you'll be celebrating. And, uh, yeah, there you have it. And then of course, today is Rosa Parks day. So there are the holidays for the day. And, uh, Do with that what you will. So here at the Gospel Coalition, Brett McCracken, who I feel like writes for them a lot. Uh, I don't know how, a lot of these guys are like pastors and they host seven podcasts and they're like, oh, my free time I write for this blog. You're like, what Mm -hmm. free time are you talking about? Either way, I thought this was interesting, especially when it comes to, you know, we've been talking a little bit about trust the last few days and his headline is How to Weather the Worsening Trust Crisis. You want to get us into it?
1: I do. He says, for decades in Western culture, we've seen a slow deterioration of trust and a a brewing epistemological crisis. We've increasingly not known how to know whose authority to trust and where we can look for truth. In recent years, the Internet's toxic buffet of fake news, conspiracy theories, echo chambers and confirmation bias deepened the crisis. But 2020 took it to a whole nother level. Uh The recently released 2021 Edelman Trust Barometer. Oh, that's a cool name. Edelman Trust Barometer shows that 2020 saw precipitous trust declines. The fascinating report describes a, quote, epidemic of misinformation and widespread mistrust of societal institutions and leaders around the world that has been accelerated by COVID-19. It says this adding to this is a failing trust ecosystem, unable to confront the rampant infodemic, leaving the four institutions, business, government, NGOs and media in an environment of information bankruptcy and a mandate to rebuild trust and chart a new path forward. These phrases are dramatic information, bankruptcy, rampant infodemic. But most of us believe they're accurate. We are sickly in the in, in, in an information ecosystem as deadly and contagious as any viral pathogen. So that is uh, some strong words to start there by Brett McCracken. And Ian, it does call to mind what we talked about a day or two ago when we discussed how uh, people find pastors less trustworthy mm-hmm. and that that people are seeing all sorts of institutions around us as less trustworthy. We really I was having a tweet, I was having a um, a uh, text exchange with someone just the other day about uh, they were calling into question about how we find media that we can trust. And their basic premise was you can't trust any of it. I do think the ability for us to say what can we trust socially right now is a huge deal both now and going forward.
0: Do you think it is worse now than it has been in the past or are we just more aware of it or like how much of this is kind of the globalization that happens as a result of technology and social media?
1: It feels worse. Normally, I'm the type, right, who would say, ah, you know, we just know about it now. But with the the rise, it feels like in the last six to six months to a year of QAnon and conspiracy theories and fake news. I don't have data to support this necessarily. It just feels worse now. It feels not only do we know it more now, but it feels like it has gotten worse. Like if you had asked me that a year ago, I'd probably just say, oh, we just know about it more now because of social media and other things. But right now it feels like the temperatures got turned up in my opinion. Do you agree with that? Do you think that you think I'm right about that?
0: Uh, I don't, I don't know. Like it is. I mean, we were just reading an article yesterday, two days ago that talks about how we're not actually as polarized as social media would have us believe. So it. I wonder if there's any kind of correlation or causation there because these things are perpetuating. I mean, with polarization comes mistrust, right? Like those seem yeah, not one and the same, but like they're related at the very least. So if it's true that there are actually – there does seem to be some data that like, man, some of these platforms and these these things that we initially thought would be great resources, they're actually um, – they're not just amplifying the mistrust and polarization that's there. They're actually creating it. And that to me is part of what I find – Complicated, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to spend too much time there because I know that you're a list guy and full gospel coalition fashion. They have a list. Do you want to real <laughs> briefly? Cause we're, you know, we're, we're already running out of time in this segment, yep. but do you want to, do you want to give us some of the takeaways? Cause I think these are really helpful to grapple with. Yup. He says it's a book that he's written. He says throughout the book, right. I return to
1: a few general interconnected themes that can help us triage the trustworthiness of knowledge and information. And so let me read just the four headings and maybe you can grab one of them. He says, uh, number one, near over far. So kind of the idea of localism uh, mm-hmm. near over far. Number two, time tested over uh, ephemeral time tested over ephemeral. Number three, communal over autonomous. That's an important one. Hmm. Communal over autonomous. And number four, holistic wisdom over merely cerebral knowledge. Holistic wisdom over merely cerebral knowledge. I know you want to dive into all four of those, but why don't you take one of those as we close this one out?
0: Well, I kind of want you to take the one that you stopped after. I'd love to know why that one jumped out at you.
1: Uh, communal over autonomous. Uh I think uh, you and I, we've talked oftentimes on the show about the importance of community. I think when it's just about me and what I'm reading online and what I'm diving into, uh, I think I can believe a lot of things that when other people, I invite them to speak into my life, they could go, hey, you know what? Like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this side thing? Now, where this gets dangerous is with echo chambers. If your communal, <laughs> if your communal people around you only believe also what you believe, then it might be a negative. But I think if you've got people around you uh, that you're bouncing ideas off of, who are helping you, uh, who are pointing you uh, to you know to, to the truths of Scripture, uh, who are helping you see the other side of debates and arguments, I think that's uh, certainly helpful.
0: Yeah, let me read what he writes to end. He says, if we're going to turn the tide of the trust crisis, which I would add, I think he's right. I think there is an actual crisis. Uh, these four tips are only the beginning, which I appreciate. Ultimately, our recovery of truth and trust must come from God, the source and standard of all wisdom, wisdom and worship. After all, go hand in hand. That's good too. He's a good writer. If God is wisdom incarnate, then our presence with him in our relationship is the most vital ingredient for our wisdom. We must orient our whole lives, mind, body, soul around God, not only knowing about him, but enjoying being with him and praying to him often for the illumination that we need to perceive truth in an increasingly foggy world. I read stuff like that. I think, I should just not be writing anymore because that (laughs) this is it's it's good prose, even if you don't agree with it. Like, I think that it's I just think it's well said and I think it's a good call. And I appreciate him saying, hey, it's not like do these four things and then we're good. Like, this is the starting point. This is. This is like the bare minimum, the radical minimums that we have to begin with, but there's still a whole lot more work to be done, which I just think is absolutely, absolutely spot on. Well, coming up next and to wrap up the show, it is Rosa Parks Day, and so we're going to spend some time talking about her and the impact of her life. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today. I should mention, by the way, tomorrow is going to be what we call a best of episode. And so we're going to replay our show from Martin Luther King Jr. Day, where we interviewed just a number of brilliant uh, men and women from around the city, leaders, uh, pastors, thinkers that I just think have an incredible voice. That'll be tomorrow if uh, if you missed it the first time that it aired. Uh, but I did want to end the show, and I know that I've been saying – that we've been trying to like wrap up the, the show thinking devotionally or in terms of something like a benediction. But today today just felt different being, you know, Rosa Parks Day. And I wanted to spend some time talking about her and her legacy and her impact. And so I got a, a couple of links in there, Brian. I'll let you choose uh, which you want to kind of start off with.
1: Yeah, I think this first one's interesting from the Washington Post, written by Justin Taylor. Uh, It's an opinion piece, Five Myths About Rosa Parks, the woman who had almost a, quote, biblical quality is what the headline says. Uh, And so it gives a lot of the background that shortly after 5 p.m. on an Alabama evening 60 years ago, uh, a 42-year-old woman uh, clocked out from her job. Uh, Rosa Parks walked westward to board the Cleveland Avenue bus to make the five-mile, 15-minute trek back to her apartment. Uh, encountering a standing room only bus and having been on her feet all day operating a huge steam press, she decided to cross the street and do some Christmas shopping while waiting for a less crowded bus. Around six, she boarded, boarded a bus and she was about to change history. Here are five myths about what happened on that first evening of December in 1955. Uh, and I didn't know some of these, so this is why I wanted to start here. Number one. Rosa Parks sat in the white whites only section of the bus that basically there was a white section, a black section. And in the middle was uh, was kind of a uh, first come first serve section. And that's where she was. But basically, when the white section filled up, then it was understood that that if there were black people sitting in the first come first serve, they were supposed to move. So there was greater seats for the white people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two, if Rosa Parks had not moved, a white passenger would not have had a place to sit. Number three, this was Rosa Parks' first conflict with that bus driver that that's not true. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number four, Rosa Parks refused to stand up because she was tired. Uh, And number five, Rosa Parks was the first black woman to exercise civil disobedience on a montgomery bus so those are interesting because a lot of those uh i i grew up or not even grew up if you had asked me the rosa park story i would have told you yeah she was tired didn't want to get up there was nowhere else to sit like a lot of those i have uh believed or have been told uh, so i think that's important to kind of get the historicity of what happened and of the story did you feel like you knew the story or were any of those uh new news to you
0: well okay i don't want i mean i don't want to brag Brian on, <laughs> on, it, on air at least you know so she she actually died in Detroit Michigan so like um, Oh, okay so like I've I've been on that bus and uh, oh yeah so you know I've talked about the Henry Ford Museum was just a couple blocks from my house and that a number of my siblings went there there's a charter school that opened up there uh, when we were in high school so yeah like some of some of her history I imagine maybe is um, is circulated more heavily in in Detroit than maybe other areas in the country in general. Mm-hmm. Like, in particular, uh, uh, you know, I've I've loved this quote for years. You mentioned it with number four of these five myths. Rosa Parks refused to stand up because she was tired. I love this quote from her. She said, uh, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically or no more tired than I was at the end of a working day. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. Oh, mm. my God. It, Like, still gives me goosebumps. Like, there's just something about I don't know. Something about that willingness to even go on record to say, because like I I could see someone making the case, like, no, no, yeah, just, yeah, just go with the tired thing. Like that'll downplay this. She's like, nope. I wasn't, I actually wasn't any more tired than I normally would have been. I was just tired of giving in. I thought, oh man, that is, that's such a line that I I just think, whew, that'll preach. All right. So I got a couple other links here. We obviously won't have time to get to all of them, but uh, which one would you like to jump in on?
1: Yeah, I just think this is interesting it's at that belief net, but it's it's an article from years ago written by Chuck Colson about the faith of Rosa Parks, and it yeah. says in her book uh, entitled "Quiet Strength." Skipping down, she talks about the role the faith uh, played in her family and her and her life growing up. She said, "I learned to put my trust in God and to seek Him as my strength." On December 1st, she was sitting on the bus, as we talked about, uh, but Parks was convinced she was told to move back. But Parks was convinced that to do so would be wrong. And she refused to get up. She said, since I've always been a strong believer in God, I knew that he was with me and only he could get me through the next step. I think to see not just, uh, you know, the her what she did. Uh, Was amazing enough, but to know the motivation behind it, like as a believer and as a I believe what I'm doing is is right and that God will be with me, I Mm. think is inspiring is to go. okay, uh, you know, faith playing this role and and in her decisions to do what she believed to be right and what God was calling her to. uh, I find that inspiring, like the whole Mm. event is inspired. Everything she did there is inspiring. Uh, but but to hear her words as to her thought process behind it, uh, it, it kind of raises even the bar of inspiration around her.
0: So, so what do you do with it today? Like, how do we keep from a day like today simply being all about remembrance? You know, we, we even talk about that, just that awful letter that we read and some of the things that we still see uh, very evident in our culture where at the very least, I think, indicate that we have a lot of work to do, right? So how how do we keep from today simply being inspirational? Like, oh, man, what an inspiring thing mm-hmm. someone else did decades ago. And um, that leaves me feeling good for a moment. But I'm not really looking to adjust anything in my life or to be challenged right. or any of that. Like, what do you... Well, how do you move it out of that realm to something that we, we can actually like live out in thinking about this being the last segment of the day, by the way, like a, a Mm -hmm. a sending benediction kind of a, kind of a charge? Yeah, it's a great question, man. I, I do think
1: that, that one of the takeaways is that, uh, that we are called to do what is right, but doing what is right will not always be easy. And it will, it very well may come with consequences. Uh, and I think this idea that, You know, like you said it, like uh, I know in my own life sometimes, even if if you see what's right to do, but you could see the landmines along the way, uh, it could be easy to say, uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to risk that. I don't want to go down that road. You could you could also rationalize your way out of it. She could have rationalized, like, oh, my gosh, just move a row back, two rows back, three rows back or whatever. Uh, But she she believed with all of her heart this was right and that God was calling her and would be with her. Uh, And therefore, sometimes doing what is right, uh, yeah, you could count the cost, but the cost shouldn't determine whether you do it or not. And so I think in our day and age, there comes a lot of times where we go, "Okay, I know what's right to do right now, but do I have the courage to do it? Do I have the faith to do it? I think when you read stories like this where, uh, yeah, she was she knew what 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 faced her if she did this, I think can become really not just inspirational, but challenge us to go, okay. Uh, where do, where am I shrinking back from what I know is right? Hmm. Are there places? And to ask us to consider that ourselves.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good charge, man. And I think that's something that, um, you know, when I was younger, I think I thought that by the time I reached the age I am now, I'll have sort of arrived in that area. Mm -hmm. And the older I get, the more I realize like, now this is, this is like a muscle that I need to continually develop, right? Like there's, there's still moments where I'm tempted to, to shrink back when I know I shouldn't or, to let something slide that I know isn't right and to continue as people, as followers of Jesus, followers of the way, like Mm -hmm. man, standing with the marginalized, the oppressed, the vulnerable, that, that can't be optional for us. That's not like one of many meals and like a gospel buffet. Like, well, I just don't choose that particular Mm -hmm. side. Like, no, I think that's, that's central to the main course of Jesus. And for us, uh, and again, not just during February, by the way, but to be a people who keep that in the forefront and to call each other, I think, to greater accountability, greater commitment when we stumble, when we lose steam, when we lose hope. Uh, that's the that's the significance of community. And I think you're right on. man. I think that's a really, really good charge. We'd love to know what you think. Those articles are up on our Facebook page and uh, any additional resources or thoughts or insight. We welcome that over at uh, the Facebook page at Common Good Talk. And with that. We wrap up today's show. Uh, Don't miss tomorrow's as we again re-air our Martin Luther King Jr. Day episode. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.